and welcome back. This is Daily Buddhism Audio Show number 55. My name is Brian Shell, and I'm your host for the show. You can find the text as well as all links mentioned in this program and all past episodes on the website at www.dailybuddhism.com. I don't have anything major to announce this week, but there are a couple of things I'd like to remind you about. First, everything I read here on the show appeared first this past week in the free daily email newsletter. Every weekday, I send out a message by email containing the article or story that you hear me read here. If you want to be ahead of the game and know where the show is going, sign up for the daily email newsletter. It really is free, and there's no spam, just one email a day with my article in it. Also, I'd like to put out a reminder that I do run several other websites, and you can find a short directory of them at www.replaymedia.com. You can find the whole list there. Some are for fun, some are educational. Check them out. And our sponsor this week is once again, Mighty Leaf Tea. They've got lots of different teas for your enjoyment, hot and cold. They have the basic teas, but also tea accessories, pots, cups, and much more. Check them out for your Buddhist tea ceremony, or just because you love their flavor. It really is great. Get special deals and free samples by visiting www.dailybuddhism.com slash tea. That's T-E-A. And now, let's get on with this week's show. Okay, on Monday, I wrote this. In last Friday's post, I discussed genetics a bit. This would be in last week's program. During the article, I mentioned whether you are tall or short, black or white, blue-eyed or brown-eyed, it's a matter of genetics, and so on, which I intended as a simple statement of fact, and never imagined that anyone would take offense to that. Yet the following comment came in by email. I appreciate your common-sense approach to the nature-nurture debate. The slideshow of the Temple of the Tigers was fascinating. However, one important point regarding your statement... Obviously, whether you are tall or short, black or white, blue-eyed or brown-eyed, is a matter of genetics. No one has any control over that stuff. Okay, the terms black and white are racial categories applied by human beings to other human beings. It's well known at this point that the concept of race is a social construct. The PBS series, Race, the Power of an Illusion, goes into depth on the complexities of the concept of race. There is information online available. Whether as a human being you are considered black or white is actually not a matter of genetics, but it's a socially constructed categorization. Not too long ago in the United States, both Irish and Italian people were not considered to be white, for instance. Okay, and my response. Firstly, I have not seen the PBS series he describes, so I may be missing his point entirely. Also, I should point out that I did choose to use the term black, rather than the preferred, in America anyway, African-American, because there is a large international readership here, and the term doesn't really work well in an international context. But anyway, I see no real problem with the way I use the term in, in this context. I could have said light-skinned or dark-skinned person, but I think it's clearer as I said it. Everyone knows what I meant, and there was no judgment or racism in the way I meant it. 
or I believe in the way I said it. But now we move to the topic at hand. You say that race is a social construct. Okay, I agree. There are some very dark-skinned people, and some very light-skinned people, and a whole spectrum of shades in between. Where the lines are drawn are vague, and much of our self-identities are caught up in where we, and others, position ourselves in that range. In the way we treat each other, it's completely a social issue. But yet, anyone with eyes can see a difference between the two. Now, Buddhists are realists. If you take a so-called white person and stand them next to a so-called black person, there is an obvious physical difference. Saying otherwise is political correctness taken to the point of absurdity. Anything else is like saying blue eyes and brown eyes are the same. No, they aren't. They work the same. They function identically. Yet there is a difference. Now, internally, spiritually, or in all the ways that matter to a Buddhist, they are the same. But to deny the physical difference just seems like denying the truth, in my opinion. We should embrace the differences and accept them, even enjoy them. But to deny them is just wrong thinking. Okay, and then a lot of readers wrote in. Some of them agreed with me. Some of them didn't agree with me. I, if this topic interests you, I would definitely suggest checking out the show notes for this, this article and checking out the comments that follow the article on the website. I would definitely go so far as to say there was some disagreement on this one. And that was immediately followed by a guest post. And this one is by LaToya Springer. LaToya is a California native currently living in Las Vegas, Nevada. And she works as an administrative assistant, wife, poet, and community activist. She's been meditating for a little over a year, combining Vipassana meditation with Zen Buddhism. The Colors of Our Practice, Buddhism Without Boundaries, by LaToya Springer. I am a fairly new Buddhist practitioner. My introduction to Buddhism was Siddhartha, by Hermann Hesse which I read in the 10th grade. My Buddhist education continued when I went to college. I took some religious studies courses that fueled my interest in the practice. In the meantime, I was still trying to be a good Christian and attend church, but there was something about Buddhism that interested me. After a long period of soul-searching, I dedicated myself to the path. I can't really say that I converted. Buddhism just seemed natural to me. It fit within my personal philosophy. There's nothing special about me. I'm 25 years old and married. I love to cook and read. And I happen to be African American. I had initial reservations about sharing my new practice with others, for good reason. A few people in the black community took my decision personally. They felt that I was turning my back on my family and culture. Suddenly, Easter gatherings and Sunday dinners became a war front in the battle of religious wills. I found myself constantly having to justify my practice. As a result, much of my first year as a Buddhist was spent cultivating patience and loving-kindness. I am met with both curious glances and open arms when I attend retreats or gather with fellow practitioners to meditate. 
though I am often the only African-American present, I have never felt out of place. In fact, I am more at ease in these situations than in the past when I attended church services with my peers. While I value my Sangha and my experiences, I am concerned about the lack of people of color in American Buddhism, particularly those in leadership roles. The Sangha, or Buddhist community, plays a crucial role in the practitioner's spiritual development. It is the community we go to for support and encouragement. But what do we do when our Sangha is not representative of us? I have found the web to be an excellent tool for expanding my Buddhist community. Sites like Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter are a great way to reach out to others. The web has been essential in helping me find other African-American practitioners. Blogs and personal websites that share the experiences of others like mine have helped me to grow in my practice. In addition, I found great books written by African-American Buddhists. There are more of us than one might think. There are times when I find myself outnumbered. I'm either the only Buddhist in a group of my peers, or the only African-American in a group of Buddhists. In these moments, it's helpful, when appropriate, to initiate dialogue about my experiences. As a result, I've learned a lot from others, and others have learned from me. Educating others, or offering a perspective not of the norm, has been rewarding. The Buddha's teachings transcend race, color, gender, and sexual orientation. We are all brothers and sisters in this practice. However, we must be realistic and not ignore the fact that many of the prominent faces of American Buddhism do not fully represent the community in its entirety. We cannot be naive to think a lack of visible diversity has no effect on the growth of Buddhism in this country. Nobody wants to take part in something that is, real or perceived to be, exclusive or exclusionary. For that reason, it's important to reach out to other communities and make them feel included. Providing a platform to share experiences can be the best kind of spiritual education. And then it was time for the Koan of the Week. This one is called Every Minute Zen. Zen students are with their masters for at least ten years before they presume to teach others. Nan-in was visited by Tenno, who, having passed his apprenticeship, had become a teacher. The day happened to be rainy, so Tenno wore wooden clogs and carried an umbrella. After greeting him, Nan-in remarked, I supposed you left your wooden clogs in the vestibule. I want to know if your umbrella is on the right or left side of the clogs. Tenno, confused, had no instant answer. He realized that he was unable to carry his Zen every minute. He then became Nanin's pupil, and he studied six more years to accomplish his every minute Zen. And then I did a book review. This one is Shaolin Qigong. Energy in Motion by Shi Zingui is published by Destiny Books. It's 154 pages, came out in 2007, and includes a DVD. These show notes, of course, have a link to order it from Amazon. The great teacher Bodhidharma is credited with the creation of Shaolin Temple Qigong and Kung Fu 
in the 6th century CE. Motivated by the terrible physical condition of the monks who spent all their time meditating or copying scrolls, his two-part system promoted the physical as well as spiritual fitness and became the basis for all the martial and meditative arts taught in the Shaolin Temple. These ancient practices increase physical health and vitality, enhance creativity, and can be practiced well into old age. Author Shi Zengui, a Shaolin monk, explains the fundamental principle of Qigong, the art of mastering energy, or qi, and moving it through the body, and provides clear demonstrations of all the positions and movements. In order to develop qi attentively, it's necessary to cultivate the art of slowness in both movement and breath work. Shi Zingui provides both a short form and a long form of the daily exercises, with less lessons on heart centering, organ strengthening, and balancing the energy using the three dantians, or the three energy centers of the body. A 53-minute DVD of the exercises performed by the author is also included. Okay, all that preceding stuff was from the Amazon website. I couldn't have explained it all any better than that. So what do I think about the book? Well, the first thing I did was read the book, and that was probably a mistake. After simply reading the book, I have to say I thought it was all a bit silly. A collection of very slow, very gentle exercises where you probably wouldn't even break a sweat. From my American background, where people routinely spend hours at the gym, and consequently end up seeing a doctor for a sports-related injury once a year, this seemed less than productive. But then I watched the enclosed DVD, and it all became clear to me. He is so slow and so graceful in these videos that it becomes obvious what the benefits will be. This seems to be just about as much about inner peace as it is physical exercise. I've definitely gained a new respect for the whole topic after watching the video. Watch the video before you read the book. The book itself is a glossy photo book with enough text to explain what's going on, but not so much as to detract from the many full-color pictures of Shi Zingui doing the exercises. The text and pictures are large and generous. You'll be able to understand fully what he's doing just by looking at the pictures. And if not, there's always the video. The DVD is a professionally produced disc with attractive printing and various chapter stops. The soundtrack that accompanies the exercises is perfect. All but the last five minutes of the DVD are videos of Xing Zingui doing exercises silently. The last five minutes are a brief biography of him, all in on-screen text. There's no speaking or voice work at all in the DVD. So if you're looking for a very low-impact exercise system that will, at the very least, improve your flexibility and peace of mind, then pick this up and follow along. I would imagine people with severe arthritis or similar problems might have some difficulty with this. But if you're simply out of shape or overweight, that should be no hindrance whatsoever to doing everything in this book. And finally, we have a reader question. And the question is, I know you've been over the Buddhist diet a million times before, but I have always been perplexed about the justification of not adhering to a vegetarian diet by the many Buddhist lay people in Asia. 
I personally am not a vegetarian, but I hate unanswered questions. Anyway, I happen to notice that the Wikipedia version, which is a terribly unreliable source, I know, of the five precepts, words the first precept as to refrain from taking life or nonviolence towards sentient life forms. Is that sentient part of the phrase, why many Buddhists eat meat? I've been struggling with this precept and deciding whether or not to consider myself a Buddhist because I believe eating meat sparingly is natural, and so is killing to eat, no matter what sort of organism you are. I also think that all vertebrates are sentient, and I love animals. I believe in practicing subsistence hunting, fishing, or gathering, and I think it's probably less karmically damaging than eating a cow or a chicken from a factory farm. I'm also willing to accept the consequences of my actions in regard to what I eat and how it gets on my plate. Another reason I struggle with the first precept is because I believe in self-defense and the right to bear arms. I would not hesitate to defend myself, my family, or the people I work with. However, if I want to adhere to the five precepts, should I shoot to disable, which goes against what I've been taught, which is shoot to kill, because A, it requires less skill, and B, the person you shot could sue you, even though they, they, they were in the wrong when you shot them. It's doubtful that I'll ever have to use lethal or sublethal force to defend myself or others, so should I stop worrying about it and be prepared to accept the consequences of my actions on a Buddhist level, as well as the personal and social consequences I have already chosen to accept by using firearms? And my answer... To start with the last part of your question first, it's generally considered acceptable to defend yourself and others when necessary, at least when lives are at stake. Killing someone over property would not be justifiable, at least not in my opinion. But as far as eating meat is concerned, that bit on sentience that you mentioned has always been hotly debated. Did Buddha really say that? And even if he really did, exactly what is sentience? Which creatures have it? and which don't. Historically, monks would not kill animals for meat. They generally raise food in gardens in their monasteries, as well as take in donations from the local lay people. Certain orders of monks were forbidden from anything other than begging for food. If they were given meat, they would accept it and eat it without reservation. They're happy to take whatever they can get. According to the old stories, Buddha himself accepted this situation. But again, that's debatable. I'm not going to judge one way or the other. I eat meat, but I think I'd probably feel better about myself if I didn't. It's one of those things I've been thinking about doing for more than a decade. But I don't cook, and I eat way too much junk food, so it's going to be very difficult for me to switch. But I will, someday. I really cannot justify it for myself other than basing it solely on convenience and that's obviously not the right answer. I'm going to leave this one up to the readers to comment and answer. Are you a vegetarian? If not, how do you justify that? And yes, there were many answers to this question on the website. Check out the show notes, read the comments, and see what everyone had to say on it. And that's all I have for you this week. The Daily Buddhism runs primarily from your donations, and it's easy to help out. Just go to www.dailybuddhism.com donate, 
and click on one of the options there. Uh, keep in mind that the Daily Buddhism Daily email newsletter is completely free. All you need to do is go to the site and sign up. If you have any question whatsoever on any Buddhism-related topic, send in your questions by email to dailybuddhism at replaymedia.com or phone them in 24 hours a day on our voicemail hotline at 937-660-4949 or post your comments, questions, or suggestions in the comment section of any individual blog post on the website. And I will see you next week.